Hi, and welcome to NASIO Voices, where we talk all things state IT. I'm Amy Glasscock in Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm Matt Pincus here in Washington, D.C. Happy New Year! On today's episode, we are thrilled to be joined by Josh Spence, West Virginia CIO. We've been wanting to have Josh on the podcast for a while now, and we're looking forward to discussing several topics with him, including cybersecurity and IT challenges in West Virginia, as well as his priorities for 2022. Well, Josh, welcome to NASIO Voices, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Josh, uh, yeah, echoing Amy, thanks for taking the time. First question for you. Can you talk to us a little bit about your background and how you ended up as CIO in West Virginia? Sure. Yeah, I came to the state actually in the chief information security officer role uh, a few years ago. I was brought on to to lead up the security and uh, um, came from being full-time with the West Virginia Air National Guard and uh, served in that CISO role for, I think, about three years before switching over to become the state CTO. Yeah, that, that's great. And I know um, Amy will will ask you about your background and involvement with the Guard a little bit later in our conversation. This past June, the legislature, with the support of Governor Justice, changed your title from Chief Technology Officer to CIO, making you the first CIO in West Virginia. Congratulations on that. Has this changed any aspect of your job or your responsibilities, or is it sort of just a title-only thing? Yeah, it's a great question. So the title was changed um, in the law because it was CTO, and we we asked for that change so that it would better align with how the industry recognizes that a CIO leads the technology, uh, typically uh, organization mm-hmm. with, within an entity. And uh, but in addition to changing the title, we modernized the language around the duties and responsibilities of the position, and there was a key motivation to that. And that is around the fact that the uh, agency that I lead, the Office of Technology, is is primarily a service support agency. And that's the function and role it's been performing, which is a very crucial role. But there's a Mm -hmm. gap, and the gap was in the actual strategic leadership and governance of technology holistically. And so the law change, again, it modernized the language and expanded the authorities to drive that central governance of IT investments and also to establish that strategic roadmap moving forward, which is just essential in today's world as uh, the way technology works. You can gain a lot of efficiencies by uh, collaborating across uh, organizations that maybe typically didn't collaborate in their technology investments in the past. Interesting. So it seems like, you know, this obviously was much more than just changing it from CTO to CIO, but really modernizing, you know, what the definition is of a CIO to be on par with pretty much most of your colleagues across the country, right? Yes, absolutely. We felt like there's there's some areas there where that central governance can help drive huge benefit. And, you know, just one quick example would be around data. Um, if there's not a central governance on understanding what data is being collected and how it's being maintained and stored, a lot of times what you end up with is these siloed pockets of data that serve the purpose by which they're collected, but they're not providing broader uh uh, benefit, which they could if you had a data management strategy in place. And so for us to be able to do that at an enterprise and statewide level, we needed those authorities to be broadened to to enable that. Got it. Thanks. So as you mentioned, Josh, you're still serving in the West Virginia National Guard. And given that the West Virginia Guard has a widely respected and sophisticated cyber unit, how have you leveraged your experience as CIO to better protect the state? Yeah, so it's a great opportunity for partnership in the sense that 
I see where the state is uh, from my state role, and then I have visibility and influence on the National Guard side. And of course, with the National Guard, you know, it has that unique mission to support state government that's different than what you'd say like the, the, the reserves has. Reserves only support federally. So understanding that unique mission the National Guard has and the need now more than ever to lean on the Guard for support in technology and cyber response is essential. And although we, you know, there's still a lot of moving pieces to that and what that's going to look like, even just from a collaboration, a training perspective, it can bring a lot of value mutually to both organizations. And uh, it's, it's just been a benefit. Yeah, that's really good that you have that unique perspective and you can probably bring some of that to some of the work that you're doing there. So the the state and local cyber grant program has certainly been top of mind for state CIOs and CISOs in recent weeks, as Matt knows very well. And <laughs> as as we await guidance from CISA and FEMA, are there statewide initiatives that you'd like to use the grant funding for? Absolutely. So I, I think there's on the security front and, of course, having that previous role as the CISO, I think there's a lot of challenge in the cybersecurity space because of perspectives of what what's trying to be accomplished. I think there's a, sometimes an incorrect perspective that cybersecurity is a problem to be solved instead of a risk to be managed. And I think that's one piece that's very, very important as we move forward in West Virginia. We're trying to to educate and, and push that concept of uh, cyber risk management as the way in which we base all of our cybersecurity foundational decisions on. And then specific to this state and local grant program is we know there's a desperate need out there. And we want to make sure that that funding provides benefit in that it actually mitigates the risk. And that's where it can be challenging because we know workforce challenges are out there. It's very, very difficult to find uh, anyone with any experience in cybersecurity, we have challenges hiring that type of staff and, and retaining them. So the, one of the areas that I think we want to make sure we're, we're using this opportunity for is bringing people together. And I think it was recently um, mentioned maybe from someone on the Department of Defense side, but cybersecurity is a team sport. We all need to be working together and pushing it together. Uh, and there's benefit in that. So I think at a high level, we want to use this as a way to bring everybody together, come together with an understanding of how we're going to approach it to bring maximum benefit and then build upon that partnership uh, as we move forward. And of course, that the grant program is going to now allow us to not only just make plans, but action those plans. So some of the actions there, too, specific to what we're looking at is how do we use the fact that uh, the Office of Technology has a security operations center uh, with security personnel staff monitoring security tools today? Could we use that capability to provide that as a service to these local governments in their investments in security tools from the grant funding? Because what you got to be, we got to be very careful of is, sure, technology is a piece of cybersecurity, but there's still a human element that has to validate an alert that goes off and and then respond to that alert. And we don't want there to be this set it and forget it mentality with cybersecurity that it's got to be monitored. It's got to be adaptive. And like I said, that's going to be a challenge in that there's just not a lot of people out there that are experienced that are able, you know, that are looking for jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
And I think, Josh, just to follow up on that, and you and I have talked about this before, there are some certain unique challenges in West Virginia with with localities in terms of you know resources and, and personnel for cybersecurity, given the fact that 80% of the grant funding has to go to locals. Can you just at a, at a high level talk about you know what your agency's relationship is like with local governments across the state? Absolutely. So we've been building partnerships. We've been having workshops uh, over the past couple of years. Before COVID, we were having them in person. We've had to do some virtual where we were bringing in local government um, representatives and just having conversations about cybersecurity in general to try to build that communication path. And so that was one area where we feel like we've strengthened awareness that we're out here and we're here to help. And then we're hoping to take that effort and take it further with this funding in a way to where we can, again, bring mutual benefit. Like so, another example is cyber threat intelligence. Big deal, right? We don't want one government entity in West Virginia to be compromised by a cyber threat activity. And then that same threat actor compromise multiple other entities because we're not sharing the intelligence. So yeah. um, that communication and collaboration pieces, we've we've already started that effort and we're, this grant program is going to help us move that along. And uh, like I said, take not only make plans, but take action. That's great. And thanks for those examples. Certainly brings it home. It's not sort of esoteric anymore. So Amy and I have been doing this podcast for over two years now, which is kind of hard to believe. And it feels like every person we've talked to, we've had some sort of conversation about the pandemic. And every time we think we're past it, it seems like some other variant comes up. So I was hoping to talk about a post-COVID world. But from an IT and cybersecurity perspective, what have been the biggest challenges you've faced during this pandemic? I think one of the one of the biggest out of the gate is is simply communication uh, and information overload. I think as a result of having to do extra right in response of the pandemic um, on top of what people were already doing and then having to adapt uh, the work model to be telework, which is effective. One of the, I think, uh, unintended consequences is people are they're becoming overloaded with information and that makes communications challenging and communication is key. I, I don't know how many situations I may become involved in where it needs my level of engagement. And then when we dig into it, a lot of times what we find is it, just miscommunication. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we faced during the pandemic. The second one is just workforce management. It's it's awesome in that we've got our agencies now has a telework policy in place and we get rave reviews from our employees about having that ability, but we recognize management of workforce and a hybrid environment is different. How do you develop teams? How do you keep team cohesion? How do you do onboarding? There's a lot of questions there. And I think that's another challenge that we're, you know, like you said, kind of we're hoping we were on the complete hmm. That was by, in the rearview mirror, but we're still yeah. kind of dealing with the pandemic. But we're we're also trying to adapt, adapt to this new hybrid work uh, workspace. Did you all have a telework policy prior to COVID, or was that developed throughout the pandemic? It was developed throughout the pandemic. We put in an emergency pot. Well, we actually leveraged our uh, contingency policy, which allowed for remote work for contingency purposes right out of the gate. But then while in that state, we've developed and implemented a full telework policy so that when we got the word that we could come back and actually be in, we would not have to bring necessarily everybody back because we understood you know, right out of the gate that that was a flexibility people were going to want to retain. Hmm. 
And, and I know this is sort of like a broad open-ended question, but like, do you have any sort of key lessons learned from the challenges that, that you faced or have continued to face throughout the pandemic? Yeah, I think one of those key lessons is to take the time to check up on your people. It's harder to do that because before you might end up checking up on somebody because you, you went down the hall, right? And you walked mm-hmm. down the hall and you just happened to see them. So then in your mind, oh, hey, there's that person. I'm going to check in on them, see how they're doing. When you're in a hybrid environment where it's just, you know, or either on a virtual meeting or you're not, you're not interacting um, in that physical capacity. It might not remind you, to, oh, I haven't talked to that person in a while. So I think that's one of the big key lessons learned just check up. You got to, again, think differently on how you're going to do that because life goes on and everybody's always having, you know, everybody's always got something going on in their life and that that can definitely impact them. And it's it's just real important to take care of the workforce in the right way. So I think that's one of the key lessons learned that we went through during this. And then I think another one is just uh, not overloading the schedule. We found that people were working far more longer hours. They were doing more than they'd ever done before. And I think what we had to recognize is we can't make that the new standard. Like there was that natural response to the pandemic that, oh, we have to just buckle down and get everything taken care of because of this, all this is happening. Um, When it was a month, (laughs) when it was going to be a month, right? Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You can't run people at that, that full on, you know, no rest type pace that super high tempo indefinitely or you burn them out. So I think that's another thing too, is making sure we don't lose sight of that. Real focus on the human element and burnout factor, which certainly we've heard a lot about, especially during the uh, the CIO and CISO leadership summit we were all at uh, in Lexington last month. So big thing. And next question for you. So broadband and internet connectivity is a huge issue for your state. Heard your governor talk about this numerous times. What has been, or I guess, what is your role and responsibility in expanding access and connectivity for citizens in West Virginia? Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, broadband is absolutely the, one of the most important issues for government to address uh, over the next uh, you know few years. It is essential that connectivity be made available you know, broad brush, it's got to be out there. Mm. So many elements of our world now depend upon that connectivity. We've got to make sure our citizens have access to it. So in West Virginia, so we do have a, the West Virginia Broadband Council. And that council includes officials based on their position with the government, like mine. So my position is named to the council. It has uh, appointed personnel that the governor appoints to the council. It has members of the legislature that serve in an ex officio capacity. Um, and that council is, is a crucial part to developing the strategy for the state moving forward and has been very active prior to all of this happening. And then, of course, now we see a significant amount of funding being made available to really accelerate efforts in broadband. And the, and the council's been able to put forward a great strategy for the governor and the legislature to execute. And, and it's going to be key that it gets moved quickly and we stay on it so that it, it, it actually brings the benefit that needs to be. In addition to my role on the council, my agency also supports the development office uh, which is an agency in commerce. And they actually, in West Virginia, we've elevated the lead to the development office to a cabinet secretary level, 
given the importance of economic development and broadband. And so mm-hmm. that's been a change. And we support that agency in a number of ways to help the council be effective in what it's bringing forward. And we share information and data that we have from from a connectivity and perspective that we see in what we do for supporting state government, but can't under uh, understate it, just how important it is, right? Exactly. I mean, it's, and well, exactly. we talk about well, and we talk about this repeatedly, which is you know, broadband is like you know the probably the top IT issue that governors can all get their hands around, right? You know, they know if people don't have access to internet, right? That's you know, it's a fundamentally important issue. So glad to hear that you do have a significant role in the state. All right. So, Josh, we understand that you're currently leading an overhaul of your state's data center. So we'd love for you to tell us more about that initiative. Are you consolidating? Are you outsourcing? What, what's the plan? Yeah, that's a big one. We, we've named it Data Center 2.0. And when I assumed the role of CIO at the time, it was still the former title. But when I assumed the role, uh, there was an opportunity and a challenge at the same time. So we had the challenge that our current data center had a, had a significant amount of technical debt associated with it. And that's not only just from the actual technical infrastructure itself, but also from the environmentals of the facility. So there was just a, it, there was challenges there big time. And at the same time, there was an opportunity to work with the governor's office who helped obtain us uh, supplemental funding to move us forward. And uh, when that opportunity came about, we stopped to ask ourselves, you know, are we going to try to just continue what we've been doing or are we going to understand where our challenges are and try to adapt uh, leveraging modern technology and maybe even a modern model of how to provide the service and just fundamentally change how we're doing data center in the state. And that's the direction we chose to go. And and since we came the, to that title, Data Center 2.0, and the main difference is um, that we have contracted with a company to provide us the infrastructure as a service. So, you know, one way to look at it is it could be private cloud, our own private cloud, but what it allows us to do and the way we've structured the service is it allows us to broker it to our state agencies in a way to where we can be far more responsive than what we ever could in the past. We can adapt and have some flexibility in what we're providing and then kind of tying it back to security. We made sure we baked that in. So with this effort, we are pushing for our data center to, under a zero trust model to build in the micro segmentation into that environment, which will significantly improve the security posture of all the resources that are contained in it. That's great. Yeah, that seems to be what I think the future will be for a lot of states moving in that direction. And, you know, a couple of years ago, we were talking about consolidating and now people are talking about, you know, doing more of a as a service infrastructure as a service situation. And and it really just makes a lot of sense because you only really have as much as you need, right? You don't end up having all this extra space that you don't need anymore. Or if you need more space, it's easier to to scale it, right? Yeah, absolutely. We want to be able to make sure as as an agency that uses a chargeback model that we didn't overbuy the infrastructure. Uh, Overbuying the infrastructure that we then own means we're going to pass in a, a, a more expensive cost to the agencies, you know, to leverage that. So this model allows us to have what we need and then Mm -hmm. very easily expand it should we get, uh, you know, advancements that we need to do so. And that's that's important piece, keeping it economically, the costs controlled, bringing up the security. And then again, like I said, being able to be responsive and flexible will be huge benefits in our service to be able to provide that type of service. Absolutely. So 
would be interested to hear what your priorities are as CIO for 2022. Yeah, so going into 2022, number one priority is workforce. It's totally obvious, I think, to everybody out there, but I'll take a moment to talk about it because I think it's vital. Is Workforce challenges are only beginning. They're only going to become harder uh, to deal with in the sense that I we're just not going to see – we're going to see far more jobs than there are people to fill up. And uh, we've been seeing that for – long time in the security space, but I, I think you're going to see it across the board in technology for years to come. And that's going to be a difficult thing for state governments to, to uh, manage because we all know that we typically pay the least. The federal government usually pays more than we do. And then obviously private sector pays more than them. Mm-hmm. So when we're at the bottom pay scale, we're the ones that are going to be probably faced with the hardest challenge of, of recruiting and retaining talent. And I think in addition to that part, with workforce, there's a second factor there, and that is this fundamental change in how we use technology. Technology is an industry that rapidly advances, but now we're seeing that rapid advancement, that rapid innovation happen right at the fingertips of the user. All these platform-based services, they roll out updates monthly, if not every so many weeks. The need to have a workforce program that provides training, development, and upskilling to all employees moving forward is going to be essential. Uh, if you seek to actually leverage the technology to gain maximum benefit. And so that's number one on the priority lists for next year. Great. Yeah, definitely an important priority. And um, next podcast, we'll be talking about the NASIO top 10 for 2022. And um, we're going to be talking about workforce then too. Um, Workforce all the time. All the time. Yes. Actually, when we had our chief privacy officer summit, a couple of weeks ago, along with the CIO and CISO summits that they were talking about that too. And so, you know, across the board, we see that in our membership is a huge issue. So in November, you joined NASIO's executive committee, and we're really happy to have you on and get to spend more time with you through that format. Can you tell us about your interest in joining the EC and taking on more of a leadership role with NASIO? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I've been now in, in my state role, uh, from both the CISO and the CIO role for you know a, a few years now. And so I, I feel more solid in my institutional knowledge with what's going on at the state. And on top of that, I have an absolute excellent staff across the board in my agency. And then my senior staff of leadership are just phenomenal. So what that does is that allows me to become engaged in strategic partnerships like with NASIO and be able to give back. And that's where I think this is an awesome opportunity. And then NASIO is an example of one of those organizations. And I don't remember who said this, but I know someone NASIO said this and I've heard, but it's uh, you get back far more than what you ever put forth in. I mean, it's just a great partnership, a collaboration of, of the minds in this field that is so important. And it, it worked out well to where I'd have that opportunity to participate. And I'm excited to, to be able to um, serve in that capacity. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a Mark Raymond adage that he always says. And uh, I yeah, certainly maybe. appreciate the great commercial message. Um, <laughs> but we're obviously thrilled to have you on, on the EC, Josh. So, Josh, before we let you go, uh, we always run our guests through the gauntlet in a segment we like to call the lightning round. We're going to ask you some hard hitting questions about your life outside of work. Are you ready? All right. I think so. All right. It is a little tepid response. Don't don't know how I feel about that, but (laughs) we're asking them anyway. All right. So like the two of us, you are the parent of young children. 
what's the most enjoyable activity or thing you've done with your kids in the past year? We got the kids, uh, this is a good one, we got the kids into hiking, even though they're young kids and and it was a little bit uh, maybe of a struggle early on, but uh, we got them there and now they actually will will go with this. I, I don't know how much they actually enjoy it. They don't complain as much. Maybe <laughs> that's a mark, but we very much like getting out in the outdoors. There's a lot of great places in West Virginia to get out in the outdoors and it was something you could do during the pandemic for sure. So we got into hiking and, and uh, been doing that and very much enjoy it. That's great. That, that's awesome. I also yeah. got into hiking with my daughter during the pandemic because it was, again, like something we could do and leave the house. And I found the key to her happiness was packing lots of snacks. <laughs> Good tip. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I've i taken my oldest daughter, who's a little younger than your kids, uh, hiking before. And it was a mistake because uh, I had to carry her for about two oh, and a yeah. half miles. And um, <laughs> it was it was not a fun experience, but maybe we'll try it next year. All right. Second question, your favorite vacation destination. I don't have a specific location other than I am definitely a mountains lake over, over sand and beach uh, and ocean. So anywhere in the mountains, whether it's, and then if I can get close and get on a lake and kayak, then, then that's where I'd want to be. Great. Good answers. And uh, when you live in the wild and West Virginia. Exactly. (laughs) I was going to say, we'd, we'd agree with you on that one. All right. So I'm always looking for, uh, movie and TV show recommendations. I just finished watching the season finale of Succession. Great show if you yeah. haven't watched it. And so, Josh, what movie or TV show are you currently watching or just have watched? I'm usually tracking different ones. This whole um, having them streaming and all the different, <laughs> different versions. You, you have all your different shows and you're tracking because they all release different times. But yeah. Right now, I'd say Wheel of Time um, on Amazon. That's based on Robert Jordan's books. And uh, uh, the books are excellent. And so far, uh, I think the show's been pretty good. It's, it's definitely what I think you'd call high fantasy. It's kind of hmm. like think Lord of the Rings. Okay. I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah, I've heard that one. to the list. I appreciate this. This is why we asked the question, Amy. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it's funny because um, we asked another person this question, I don't know, early this year. And my husband really got into the show that was recommended and he's watched like the entire thing. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, it was the there expand. you go, Will. Another, <laughs> another, another recommendation. Yeah. Wheel of well, time. Josh, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. And thanks for all that you do for Nasio as well. We really appreciate it and appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you very much. Great to be here. Thanks, thanks. Josh. Thanks again for listening to Nasio Voices. Nasio Voices is a production of the National Association of State Chief Information Officers. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with Nasio's own Eric Sweden to talk about the 2022 Top 10 list. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Leave us nice reviews. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.